Ephesus. A couple of quick announcements. Again, always a good reminder before services, turn off that phone, mute it, put it on airplane mode. Uh, make sure everybody's not looking at you when it starts ringing in the middle of service. A couple other announcements. Continue to be in prayer. This Sunday is our Christmas Miami service at the 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. service. There will be some special music, choir, lots of sweet things happening. So please be praying for that service. Please be inviting other friends, family, and co-workers. And uh, tonight at 6 p.m., we'll be gathered together here at the church to pray. If Sunday nights are difficult for you, always keep in mind before services at 8 a.m., uh, the, the cry room, the prayer room, the moms are, cry, are praying while the babies are crying, uh, right? But that room is available for prayer before services on Sunday morning at 8 and before services on Wednesday at 6.30. So just continue to keep in prayer Christmas Miami service. Uh, next Wednesday, the 22nd, we'll have our Christmas choir night and night of worship, night of fellowship. So that's another great uh, evening as well. To start off the year on January 1st, we'll have the church open and available for prayer uh, for 24 hours. So hopefully you can come on out and pray together as we start off the year in prayer. Again, trying to make a greater emphasis on prayer, on fasting, and on reading through the Word. Uh, Within the next two weeks, hope to get to you a little uh, 5x6 card. And we're going to try to pray and fast as a church together. And each day we'll have a different scripture different thing to fast, different amount of hours to fast. And then also we'll be handing out just a Bible reading plan for the year so that as a church we can pray and read and fast together. Uh, One final announcement on December 26, after uh, sort of all the running around of Christmas, God's Way Radio is going to be having a winter bash event at the Kendall Ice Arena. So if you're interested in going to ice skate or just hanging out, Please come on out for that. You can buy tickets at godswayradio.com slash events. Uh, the Godsway Radio team is going to be in charge of the DJ booth there at the arena. Uh, so it should be a sweet evening. Uh, lastly, young adults, no registrations open for the winter retreat. Uh, it's already about halfway full, so make sure you sign up for that sooner rather than later. Revelation chapter 2. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning, Lord. Uh, God, we thank you for the joy and privilege of being able to gather together and be the church, Lord. We just pray that you'd be working in us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would give each of us ears to hear this morning, Lord. Soften our hearts, God. Break our pride, Lord. Help us to be humble and to see where we are truly at with you and the things of you, God, in our relationship with you, Lord. And God, we just pray, pray for our family, Lord, our friends, those who are hurting, those who are going through difficulty, Lord. Lift up Hector and Vivian, Lord. Think of Ray and Judith, God, uh, Lisandra, Jessica, Lord, uh, Joe and Renee. So many in the church, Lord, going through difficulties. Pray for Joe and Angie and the Cabrera family, Lord. Just, we just pray for those that we love and care about, Lord, that are going through such a difficult season. Pray that you be encouraging them, Lord, and uh, God, for anyone in the church, Lord, just feeling just lonely, Lord, during the season of Christmas and New Year's and so many holidays, God, we just pray that you'd be ministering to them and comforting them, Lord, that they'd uh, just reach out to someone else in the body, God. Uh, But Lord, we pray you'd fill each of us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, fill me to overflowing, help me to rightly divide your word and uh, to just get out of the way, Lord, to just put you and your word on display. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 2. Before we get to chapter 2, in chapter 1, verse 11, we see to who the book of Revelation was written to. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, we see a list of churches there. It reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These are seven churches that are in Asia Minor, which today we'd be called, we would call it Turkey, right? Not Turkey that you ate on Thanksgiving, uh, but the nation of Turkey. That's who this letter is addressed to. And these churches, if you search online for the seven churches in Revelation images, you look for a map, and it literally looks like a horseshoe or an upside-down U. And this was the postal route there in Asia Minor at the day. It would start off in Ephesus, and it would go in a U. It's a, a postal route. It's a road that would lead all the way and end there in Laodicea. Again, these seven churches were each written to with the book of Revelation. It's Jesus having John sit down with him, and Jesus is speaking, and John is to write down like Jesus' secretary and write down everything that Jesus is saying. So he'd write down Revelation one time, Two time, three time, four time, writer's cramp, right? Five times. He'd write this down seven times, and then it was to be sent to these seven churches that were alive, that were meeting for services while John was on the island of Patmos. And during this day and age, there was intense persecution going throughout all of Christendom in this day and age. And when the pastor or leader would receive this scroll from John, it would literally be like getting a piece of mail and saying, Oh my goodness, John has written to us from the island of Patmos. So they would gather everybody together. Hey guys, John the Apostle has written to us at Calvary, Miami. Let's get together. And they would read through the book of Revelation saying, Look at what John has written to us. There's some good news and bad news in that. Because what we're going to see in each of these seven letters is that Jesus gives them a, a commendation. Jesus gives them a conviction. And Jesus gives them a command. And this is a great rule of thumb for us if you ever have to have a difficult conversation with someone, whether you're a parent or in leadership. Jesus always starts off with commendation. He always starts off saying, hey, these are the things you're doing well in. You're doing great in these areas. I'm so blessed that you're doing this, that, and the third. Then after that, Jesus comes to the conviction. He says, hey, this is what's wrong in your life. This is what's wrong in your church. This is a critical area that's broken that needs to be addressed. And I'm grateful Jesus, he's very plain and simple in this book, that he gives them the way to fix it right away. He gives them a command. He says, hey, this is what, this is what you're doing that's great. This is what you're doing that's broken and needs to be fixed. And here's the command on how to fix it. So we're going to read here, right, spoiler alert, the church of Ephesus, he, he tells them they've left their first love. Imagine sitting there all together in the house church of Ephesus and you're reading through there and then all of a sudden you've left your first love. And the conviction of the pastor, 
You could think of the Apostle John. He was once the pastor of the church of Ephesus. I have to imagine he's heartbroken as Jesus is telling him to write this letter to a church that he loves, or a church that he's thinking of the different people in attendance and where they usually sit or where they usually serve there in the church of Ephesus. And these were real people. This was a real church. So again, these, these letters, this book of Revelation is written to seven different churches once upon a time in history. It also gives us the sequence of church history, starting from the early church with the apostles, ending all the way till today, living in the days of the church of Laodicea. Perhaps you don't believe that here this morning. At the end, we can all know that Jesus has given us seven different types of churches. And every church throughout all of human history is going to fall into one of these seven churches. He didn't give us eight churches or 12 churches or 112 different churches. Right? That'd be a really big book of Revelation, right? He gives us seven different churches. So it's for us, our church today. The number of seven is the number of completion, the number of totality. So every church, our church included, I need to be reading this. Our pastors need to be reading this asking, Lord, who are we? Who are we right now, today, this day in December 2021? Which church are we today? And then finally, each letter ends with the opportunity for each of us, if we have ears to hear, to see what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us individually. And Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, is always a piercing portion of Scripture. It's always a portion of Scripture that you can read and say, Lord, is this me? Have I left my first love? So finally, the book of Revelation, it's written to us personally. It's written to us. We should be looking at these seven different churches saying, Lord, is this me? Just to remind you guys, the outline is found in verse 19 of chapter 1. Write, write down the things which you have seen. That's everything in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus speaking to John. John's writing down, okay, the things which you've seen, that's chapter 1. The things which are, that, that would be if John had a humongous telescope in the island of Patmos and was able to look at these seven churches, he's writing down the things which are. Present day for John, all the way till today, the church age. That's found in chapter 2 through chapter 3. And then finally, chapters 4 through 22, he's told to write down the things which will take place. In the Greek, that's that word metatauta, which means after these things. That's how Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 looks like. And one thing I want to mention is for us to be careful as we're sort of putting the church of Ephesus under the microscope that we don't forget or get lost in the whole idea of what the point of the book of Revelation is. What's the point of the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, those first five words, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ. This isn't the revelation of the church of Ephesus. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be given greater insight in what's important to Jesus. And if you really love someone, if you really care about them, you want to find out, hey, what's important to them? What makes them tick? What do they enjoy? What do they hate? What do they love? And this is important for us because it's going to reveal to us what Jesus is looking for not only in the church, but in his bride, in us individually, the things that are important to Christ. 
We're going to see to all these churches, he doesn't write to them about the color of the rug, right? To the church in Calvary Chapel, Miami. I can't believe you have blue and gray in the sanctuary. What are you guys doing? That totally clashes. He doesn't write anything about that. He doesn't say, hey, the cafe ministry is uh, amazing. They're going to be serving uh, pan-fried noodles today after service, right? They are doing that. But he's not writing that, right? He's not talking about those things. He's not saying, what are you going to do with that property? Or why haven't you cut the grass? Why are those modulars still out there? He doesn't talk about any of those things. He goes to what's most important to him, and that's our heart. That's the most important thing from Christ looking into us is the heart. Listening to Damien Kyle, just so much insight. He says, a church will not rise above the standard of the people that make up that church. Again, what is the church? Some of us, we drive by A Street, right? We're going west. Oh, the church is over there. If we're having service, yeah, the church is over here. But if the church is empty, this is not the church. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, we make up the church, right? Where two or more are gathered, he's gathered, he's there in their midst. We are the church. And if there's ever a day where we can't meet together here and we have to go to house churches, then the church will be at my house and your house and your house and your house. And that's where the church will be. Again, a church will not rise above the standard of the people that make up the church. So maybe there's some things that bother you in Calvary Chapel, Miami. Man, look no further than in the mirror. Right? Because what we should be doing is imagine taking an average of the spiritual estate of every single one of us. Every single one of us from the least, like the complete carnal or unbeliever to the person that loves and is most like Jesus Christ. As we take that average, that is going to be the standard of our church, Calvary Chapel, Miami. Again, the church is the humans that belong to the family of Calvary Chapel, Miami. It's not the building. It's not the address. We are the church. We're gathering together, loving the Lord and loving the church. We go to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read verse 1 through 7. And then come on back. At verse 1 it reads, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience. And have labored for my name's sake. And have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
right? It starts off, it's a letter written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 sort of gives us the key to understanding these next two chapters. It tells us the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches itself. That word angel in the Greek is simply a messenger. And this is a letter written to the messenger of that church or the pastor or leader of that church. Some think it's the guardian angel placed over that church. We may or may not have a guardian angel. I've been on some mission trips that make me think we have a guardian angel, right? But we must know angels cannot repent. Angels cannot repent. So during the fall, when Satan, when Lucifer causes one-third of all the angels to turn their backs on the Lord, they have no chance of repentance. For the rest of eternity, they have no outcome but to be damned to hell for all of eternity. Also, how expensive would the postage be for John writing a letter to seven different angels, right? If you really want to be looked at weird, go to the post office and say, hey, I want to write this to a couple angels, right? So again, this is written to the seven pastors over the seven churches. After service, please don't call me angel. It'd be awkward for the both of us. Be weird. So they're written to the seven leaders, seven messengers. Chuck Smith, he says, the business of the minister is to hear for the church which has been committed to his care. He is to receive the word from the mouth of the Lord and deliver it faithfully to Jesus' church to see that it is accepted and observed. So it's written to the pastor, the leader of Ephesus at this time. The church of Ephesus was in the city of Ephesus. You guys are good. You guys got it, right? It's there in the city of Ephesus. What does this city look like? This city was a booming city. It was a big city. It had a large port that connected it to the rest of the ancient world. It also had four major highways going in and out of the city of Ephesus. It was the first on this postal route that we talked about. Economically, the city of Ephesus was used as the central bank of Asia Minor. So the whole entire country would use this city as its central bank. Wealthy men would use the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana as a treasury and a bank. Merchants, kings, and even cities would make their deposits and they would place it deep into the center of the temple to be kept safe under the protection of this deity. People wouldn't mess with it because it was considered holy. When it comes to religion, Ephesus worshipped Diana. Or Artemis. It's interesting. Listen, John MacArthur says even pagans, they began confusing genders and nothing is different today. They go back and forth. Is it Diana? Is it Artemis? Is it a boy or a girl? But Diana was the goddess of fertility. And the temple to Diana was known as the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. And it was supported by 127 columns. Each column was 60 feet tall. I don't know what's the largest Lego tower you've ever built with your kids, but again, imagine 60 feet tall, 127 solid columns. And people would come and worship Diana or Artemis by having sex with one of the temple prostitutes. One commentator says Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. Here, many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were being practiced. There were books containing formulas for sorcery 
and other ungodly and forbidden arts, and they were plentiful in that city. So again, an evil city, a booming city, a rich city, and an evil city, right? Sort of sounds like Miami. They got a port, they got highways, they've got money, but they have so much sin and disgust. However, the church of Ephesus had a rich history, an incredible list of pastors and teachers. It starts off in Acts chapter 18 with Aquila and Priscilla. Paul goes on a missionary journey with them. He drops them off at Ephesus and he continues on their way. Later on in verse 24 of Acts chapter 18, Aquila and Priscilla, they meet a young man by the name of Apollos who is speaking with people mostly about Judaism But he was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. The only baptism he knew of was the baptism of John the Baptist. And as he goes there in Ephesus, he's telling everybody about the baptism of John the Baptist. Aquila and Priscilla pull him to the side, share with him the full gospel, and share with him the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Next would come Paul. You could go to Acts chapter 19. And here's when we see the church of Ephesus truly explode. Acts chapter 20, sorry. Acts chapter 20. And if you've ever read through the book of Acts, sorry, it is chapter 19. If you ever read through the book of Acts, there's usually either a revival or a riot. That's usually what happens chapter by chapter. In Acts chapter 19, we get both. We get revival and a riot. And that's what's going to happen here. Paul, he's coming back to Ephesus. He's meeting there. He's speaking with the people. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. We'll jump around here a little bit. It says, And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Instead of saying Christianity, they they would call it the way. Verse 24, Acts 19. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also even the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord and having seized Gaius and Aristocrus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. We could jump down to verse 35. It says, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, What man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. So what happens is that as Paul is sharing the gospel, there is revival. And whenever there's true revival, reformation takes place afterwards. There's revival in the city of Ephesus, so people stop buying their little idols, right? 
That's what's happening here. The silversmiths, they're getting mad because no one's buying their idols. Supply and demand is going, right, hitting the floor. No one's buying idols for their chariots. Nobody's buying idols for their necklaces. Nobody's buying idols for their front lawn, right, with the little lights that we see sometimes, right? No one's buying these idols. Now these men gather together. They create a riot, and all of these problems are arising. And this is when this church of Ephesus truly explodes. In chapter 20, verse 31, we see here that Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years. Of all of Paul's missionary journeys, that's the longest amount of time he ever stayed in one city. After Paul, Paul would leave there his son in the faith, Timothy. You can find that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. He tells Timothy to remain in Ephesus. At the end of 1 Timothy in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul sends Tychicus to him. He'll become the, the assistant right, to Timothy, and later on he'll take over the church. And finally, John the Apostle will be the last pastor that we know of here within the church of Ephesus. Talk about incredible teaching, right? You got Apollos, you got Paul, you got Timothy, you got John. You have so many incredible teachers. Could a church with so much sound teaching and incredible leadership ever fail? Could they ever fail? Could they ever fall? And yet that's exactly what we are going to see happens. And all of life is not about how you start, but it's where are you today and how are you going to finish. That's what all of life is about. It's not about how you started your walk with the Lord or how you started your race, how you spent whatever amount of years you've been alive. All of life is about how are you doing right now. Because depending how you're doing right now, the trajectory for your life is going up and up to the things of the Lord or it's slowly but surely crashing down. Depending where we are at right now, it's sort of a precursor to where we are going to finish. And I pray here this morning that if we're convicted of where we are at right now, we would be obedient to the Holy Spirit and make whatever changes we need to make so that we would not finish in an explosion. Or so that we would not finish with our family falling apart or our marriages falling apart. You go to Galatians chapter 3. We can go there quickly. Galatians chapter 3 verse 3. Again, a warning here for another church. Paul writes here to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 3. Galatians 3, verse 3, it says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Again, family, we need to work to be consistently filled with the Holy Spirit that we will be able to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. We need to endeavor, we need to make sure that we are abiding in the vine, abiding in Jesus Christ, dwelling with him, dwelling in the word so that we can continue to grow and mature and stay plugged into him and not into our flesh. As a pastor, I'll tell you one thing, there's a little bit of comfort here because if Apollos, Paul, Timothy, and John couldn't keep a church together forever, I've got no shot at this. That's what, that's what I gather from here. It's all about the Lord and the work that Jesus is doing within our church. 
We go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, the second half. It says, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Again, this is not the revelation of the church of Ephesus. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So where is Jesus? He's walking in the midst of these seven churches. He's holding each of these seven pastors and ministers within his own hand. And here what I see, hopefully what we see, is the incredible amount of grace and mercy that Jesus has. Right? The church of Ephesus, they've, they've left their first love. We're going to see some of these other churches. It's just a progression, really, of getting worse and worse and worse. And Jesus, he doesn't get one of the angels, right, one of the ministers, and throws, throw them across the room, right? Jesus is not walking in the midst of the seven churches and annoyed with them kicking down lampstands and getting them out of the way. In fact, the word they're holding is to hold them securely. He's wanting to take care of them. He's beckoning. He's pleading with them to come back to him. Again, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Isaiah tells us that he will not put out a smoldering flax. That if there's a little bit of embers there, he's not going to snuff it out, but he's going to try to breathe into it and take care of it. That if there's a reed bent over, a blade of grass bent over, he's not going to just cut it off or get rid of it, but he's going to bandage it and try to make it strong once again. Again, where is Jesus? He's not up in heaven doing nothing. We know last week he's praying for us. He's praying for us on behalf of us to the Lord. But Jesus' presence is immediate within the church. That's where Jesus is. He's walking in the midst of these seven churches, and he's essential to the church. That's why we're here, family. We're here to proclaim Jesus and display who Jesus is to the rest of the world. We're not just a country club. We're not just a fraternity, right? For that, you should join a sailing club. They got cool boats to ride on the water, right? You think there's the Elk Lodge, there's the Boy Scouts. There's tons of clubs out there you can join. But our mission as a church is to proclaim and display who Jesus Christ is. It's not the Jesus Christ we want or desire or we twist scripture for. It is the Jesus Christ of the Bible. That's our job. That's our role. And we're going to see later on if we ever stop doing that, we really don't deserve to be a church anymore. If we're not proclaiming Jesus Christ, if we're not displaying Jesus Christ, there's no point in being a church anymore. Verse 2 and 3, it says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Again, what comfort here, or a little bit of fright here. Jesus knows our works and he knows our condition. Perhaps in this season you've been serving in obscurity. You're all alone caring for your elderly parents. You're all alone caring for your spouse or your son or daughter with special needs and no one sees your work and your service. Take comfort in knowing that Jesus sees your work. Jesus sees your heart of service. Jesus sees the love and the grace and the mercy that you're extending to people on behalf of the Lord. 
He sees you if you're serving in obscurity. If you come and you volunteer during the, during the week or you're doing something out and about in the city, Jesus sees your work. He takes note of it. None of it is going to be undone. None of it is going to be forgotten. He sees all of it. However, he also sees if we're just serving and going through the motions. He sees if we're being lazy and we're trying to impress someone, they walk by and we start picking up the broom, right? We're falling asleep in the parking lot and someone's driving in and we get back up and we're like, perfect, right? Bringing them in. He sees that as well. He sees if we're serving simply for the applause of man. He sees if we're serving just for some networking, right? Really using the church like a club. Trying to get plugged into this or that or get more clients. He sees that. He sees if we're serving for our own glory. To hear people tell us how incredible we are or how gifted we are. He sees that. He sees if we're serving for any other fleshly desire, right? Trying to impress that guy or girl that we're trying to see if they're the one, right? He sees that as well. But this is a commendation. He's happy that this is happening. Works should be a part of the church. It should. It should be a part of each of us as a believer. I think each of us know, right, the book of James, faith without works is is dead. And if we're saying, yes, Lord, I love you, but there's no work attached to that, perhaps your faith is completely dead and no and not real. Charles Spurgeon, he says, there are also working Christians who do not approach to laboring. Yet a lifetime of such work as theirs would not exhaust a butterfly. Now when a man works for Christ, he should work with all his might. Again, if you've been saved, if you've been freed from the power of hell and death and sin, should there not be a fire in your belly to serve the Lord? If he's taken you from the miry clay, from the dumpster, and he's put you on a rock and rebuilt you and cleansed you and taken your sins from you, pulling them as far as the east is from the west, should there not be a fire in us to serve him and to bring other people to that same rock? If there's not, perhaps we've grown cold. Perhaps we think we're hot stuff. So there should be work attached to our faith. I hope that our lifetime of work for the Lord would exhaust at least a butterfly, right? I hope so. Their works and their labor, they worked hard for the Lord. They served the Lord and they served his people. Again, it's hard to serve the Lord if you're not serving any other human being, right? That's the way we serve the Lord. It's serving one another, caring for one another. He speaks of their patience. Patience is steadfast endurance. It's that they kept working even when it was inconvenient. They kept serving even when it wasn't comfortable. They kept serving the Lord with the endurance of a marathon runner. Again, what an incredible church. So much conviction for each and every one of us. Yet we're going to see here they didn't have it all together. He says that you cannot bear those who are evil. In Acts chapter 20, we can turn there real quick. We get a little bit more insight here into the special relationship that Paul had with the church of Ephesus. As he's there departing, the different pastors and ministers, leaders of the church are literally in tears as he's departing from them. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul gives them some warning about what's going to come down the line. Acts chapter 20, verse 29, it says, For I know this, 
that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. You see, the church of Ephesus, they did well. They heeded Paul's warning. And this reveals to us a couple things. It reveals to us that the church of Ephesus had a knowledge of the word. They had a knowledge of the word. And because they had a knowledge of the word, they were able to have discernment. They were able to have discernment to be able to tell, okay, this person is evil. This person is walking in sin. They had a knowledge of the word. They had discernment, but then they had holiness. They had a purity about them. That the Lord, as he says, be holy as I am holy. That's what he's called each of us to be. That's what he calls the church to be. And finally, they had obedience. They were obedient to the things of God. You ha- to have discernment, you have to have a knowledge of the word. You have to have discernment, have to have holiness and obedience in order to not bear those who are evil. And here, Jesus is commending them. He's saying, you do well that you cannot bear those who are evil. You see, some think, no one here, right? But some think it's wrong when someone in the church calls someone else out. Something it's not Christ-like. It's not gracious. It's not kind. We got to love like Jesus loves. And when someone is placed on church discipline, some people get angry. When a pastor pulls you aside and speaks to you about maybe a speck in your eye after pulling out the log in their eye, that is not evil. In fact, that is Christ-like. And this is commended by Jesus Christ himself, the Savior of our souls. This is what a church should be doing. They should not be able to bear with those who are evil, people who are calling themselves Christians and living like they are in the world. A good church should not bear with those kinds of things. Then he says, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. I believe it's in 1 John. He calls us to test the spirits. Test the spirits. Don't trust everyone saying that they're a pastor. Don't trust everyone saying that they're apostle so-and-so or shepherd so-and-so or prophetess so-and-so or leader so-and-so. We are called to test the spirits. Charles Spurgeon, he says, this was grand of them. It showed a backbone of truth. I wish some churches of this age had a little of this holy decision about them. For nowadays, if a man be clever... He may preach the vilest lie that was ever vomited from the mouth of hell, and it will go down with some. Again, as believers, we possess the truth, and we should exercise discernment to test the spirits. I think I was driving, I think it's on 826. There's like a billboard that says the young apostle or something weird like that, right? Like what in the world is this with a website and everything? We need to test the spirits. Don't just follow every, right, we talk about a TikTok theology, right? Or pastor so-and-so on YouTube or look at this person's following. We need to test the spirits. We could turn quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we see an important characteristic of the church. Very, very important for us in a day and age when so many are asking what is truth. Some people are trying to destroy truth. Some people are trying to treat truth like 
Cotton candy, you could mash it to whatever you want it to. You could pick a color. You could change it around. We need to realize that we have the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, right? We just learned pastor of Ephesus. It says, I write so that you know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Family, if you're here, I pray, I hope you're not looking to the world to tell you what is truth. The Supreme Court doesn't have the corner on truth. The world around us, our culture, athletes, musicians, they don't possess the truth unless they're a believer. We should be looking for the truth in God's word. And especially for the parents here and the young people here, the only place you should be looking for the truth is in the word of God. That's our role as a church. We are the pillar and the ground of truth. We shouldn't be looking elsewhere for the truth. We possess it. We have it. It's in the word of God. Back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, it speaks of their perseverance. That they were not growing weary in doing good, but they were working and laboring for the sake of Christ. It's not that they did this one time, right? Hey, remember that one time we kicked that guy out because they were evil? Hey, you remember that one time we were able to discern they weren't really an apostle. They were just setting up a Christian pyramid scheme and trying to make money. No, they persevered. They kept doing this over and over and over again. Even when they were tired, even when they were weary, even when things were difficult, even when it hurt them to have to exercise these things to be obedient to God in the church, they were obedient to it. However, in verse 4, right, what does it tell us? Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Right, that is, that word nevertheless is despite all of that. You see, some of us, myself included, we look at verse 2 and 3 and say, ah, there's like 10 things in here they are doing good. There's only one thing they're doing bad. They're pretty good, right? They're not doing that bad, right? I think some of us, we love to only have one thing wrong with us when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. However, this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. Notice, it's not that they've lost something. It's that they've left it. They've abandoned it. The church of Ephesus was going through all the motions, but they left out all of the emotion. They were going through all the works, but they had abandoned their first love. And that happens to us, whether we realize it or not. Right? This word first love is speaking of that honeymoon type of love. That just being engaged type of love. That just finding out that she likes you back type of love, right? That excitement in the air, that you can't wipe the smile off your face, right? Uh, my grandparents, they could tell when one of uh, the grandkids were in love, right? And they would look at the smile and say, who do, you, who do you like, right? Who are you in love with, right? You're walking on the clouds, you're all smiley, you're all happy, right? What's going on with you? And each of us, hopefully, right, you've been there or maybe you've at least seen it on the movies in the Hallmark Channel or something like that, right? But that's what this first love is like. When truly, I think the easiest way to put it is the main attraction is being with that person. That's what the main attraction is. That's what first love really is. It's not about, oh, they're going to take me to this restaurant. 
It's not about that, oh, we're going to go do this activity or they're going to give me this connection or we're going to go do this. You don't care if you're eating McDonald's or Taco Bell. You just want to be with that person. You just want to talk with them. You just want to be in their presence. And Jesus is telling John to write to the church of Ephesus. They have left. They've abandoned their first love. There's no more passion in their service. There's no more passion in their works. From the outside, the church looks incredible. They have young adults on Mondays. They have men's and ladies on Tuesdays. They have service on Wednesday. They have youth. They have basketball ministry, right? They have a cafe, a youth cafe. They have all these incredible things. But they've lost the main attraction, which is Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 2, you could turn there quickly if you would. Jeremiah chapter 2. After the book of Psalms and Proverbs, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, the Lord has a similar conversation with the nation of Israel. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord says to them, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go. And cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend, and disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. If we had time, the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 speaks of how Israel began to go after other gods. They left their first love. But the Lord, he remembered the kindness of their youth. He remembered the love that they once had for the Lord when they were going through difficulty, if you would. When they were going in the midst of the wilderness, they had a love and an excitement for the Lord and the things for the Lord. And family, if we have ears to hear, may we be crying out, Lord, is this me? Have I left my first love? Is is there any more passion within us for Jesus, for the main attraction? Charles Spurgeon, he says, a church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart or when that love grows cold. Lose love, lose all. Again, we have no business being a church if we have no love for Jesus Christ, if we have no passion for him. I remember when was the last time, right, you were in high school or middle school or you were in college. I don't know if you've ever had one of those professors that you could tell they did not want to be a professor, right? Or they didn't want to teach that subject in school. They wanted to teach pottery and they're stuck teaching social sciences and you're stuck listening to them being stuck teaching social sciences, right? And if it's a field you want to get into, it's like a cup, a bucket of cold water on top of you. And Jesus is saying, hey, I am not going to allow a church that has no passion or love for me try to reach other people. Because that's going to be a bucket of cold water upon them. How are you going to reach someone with the passion of Jesus Christ when you have no passion? You don't love him. You don't care for him. He's not the main attraction anymore. And now in verse 5, he tells us, remember... Therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else 
I don't know any parents here, right? Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, that or else shows us how important this is to Jesus. They had all the works. They had all the doctrine. They had all the theology. They were being obedient to the word of God, but they had no passion for Jesus, and Jesus would not stand for this. So what's the command? How do we get right with him? The very first thing is to remember. Remember. Do you remember when you first came to the Lord? The excitement you had for Jesus, the excitement, he loves me. He died for me. He died for someone like me. Are you, are you serious? Are you sure? The excitement when you first come to church and you've never seen so many smiley people and loving people and kind people. But what happens to us after a few years? Those same people, the first time we came, the first month we came, so smiley, so loving, so kind. A couple of years go by, and then all of a sudden, what happens? They're like the meanest people ever, right? They don't say hi to me anymore. They don't greet me anymore. This is the meanest people ever. Is it the people that have changed, or perhaps it's our heart, our passion. Do you remember when you first got saved and you bought your first Bible, right? I don't know why. Usually people get saved and they try to buy like the biggest Bible they can buy, right? Hopefully someone steered you to buy a smaller one that you could keep in your pocket or in your book bag. And you buy the giant Bible, then you buy the special pens and the special pencils and the special cover and each different color highlighter. And you're reading your Bible. You're excited to get in your word. I love little kids when they first get their Bible and highlighters. What do they highlight? Everything, right? Every verse. Every verse is inspired, so they're just highlighting every single verse, every single portion of Scripture. Right, someone when they first get saved, hey, this morning in my devos, I read the whole book of Luke. I have some questions for you, right? Family, is that where you're at today? Do you remember when someone first asked you to start serving and the excitement you had? Man, are you sure you want me to serve? I might mess this up. I'm new to this. Are you sure you want me to serve? And then what happens over a few years? Ugh, I have to serve today, right? Do I really have to get up today? Do I really have to do this again? Right, the excitement for the people. You first get saved. Anyone asks you or invites you anywhere from the church, yeah, yeah, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. A couple of years pass by. Eh, so-and-so invited us to their house. Eh, I don't know if I want to go there or not, right? So-and-so invited us out to eat afterwards. Eh, I'm going to wait see if somebody better invites me over, right? Is it that people have changed or perhaps out we have left? We've abandoned that passion for Jesus Christ, right? That abandonment, that's taking steps of faith. I remember there was a year, I just sensed it on my heart, and I told Amanda, hey, any missions trip this year, I'm going on. That's just what I sense on my heart. The Lord's going to provide, the Lord's going to do it. Do you have those steps of faith, right? When we first get saved, Lord, if it rains today, you want me to talk to my coworkers about you, right? It's like summer in Miami, it rains every afternoon. But you're saying, Lord, if you do this, Lord, you want me to do this, Right? And here's the difficult thing, family. If you remember a day like that, you and I are the church of Ephesus. If we can ever remember a day where we had a greater passion for Jesus, we are living as the church of Ephesus. I hope you, I hope you have ears to hear that. 
If there was ever a day that we had a greater passion for him, if there was ever a greater day that we had no greater passion than to just read our Bible, that when we would be bored, we wouldn't be looking on Netflix or TV or social media. We'd be turning to the word of God to read. We'd be looking forward to our devils. We'd be looking forward to Bible teaching. Any free time we had, we'd be taking in the word of God. If you can remember a day like that, past tense, we are the church of Ephesus. We are. The great thing is he doesn't just leave us there. He gives us another R letter word. Some people, they don't like this word whatsoever. He tells us, remember those days. And then he says to repent. And sometimes we don't like this word, right? We're like, repent. Oof, I don't like that word, right? Get that thing away from me. But repent, it's a beautiful word. It's basically stop doing what's wrong and start doing what's right. That's all it is. And that's what we need to do if we can remember a day when we had a greater passion or greater excitement for Jesus. I, I love each of you. I'm so happy each of you are here. But there's warning signs that go in a, in a pastor or leader's mind and heart when someone comes up and is just telling us past tense all the things they once did for the Lord. There's alarms going off. Oh, I once was a this, and I once oversaw this, and I once was a pastor here, and I once served there. What are you doing today for the Lord? Is there no longer a reason to serve him? Is there no longer a reason to be grateful that he saved you? Or have you gotten to the point where you deserve to be saved? Perhaps someone's broken your heart along the way. Was that the Lord? Or was that just another human being just like you? That's frail, that messes up, that you have to forgive if you want the Lord to forgive you. Remember and repent. And what's the only way we truly repent? The last word there is to return, to redo, to begin doing those things you once were doing. That's how we get back on track. Go grab that big Bible out of your closet, right? Go grab all of those highlighters. Mark on your calendar, this is a night to spend with Jesus. You, you drive to the beach, you drive to the park, maybe you don't like being outside, right? You drive somewhere, right, to a bookstore, a coffee shop, you leave your phone in the car and you just spend hours in the word of the Lord, right? That, that's what we need to be doing. It's difficult in a marriage when the flame has right, been lost, when a, a husband and a wife, it's like they're two ships in the night just passing by, they never talk, they never do anything. But it's about the love for one another, Sometimes you're there and in the middle of life, right, they're a great husband, they're a great wife, they're a great husband, they're a great father, they're a great mother, they're a great accountant, they got all the bills in order, a great provider. But sometimes you take a step back and say, I didn't marry you because you'd be a great mother. I married you because I love you. I wanted to spend the rest of my life with you. And those sorts of days happen and the only way we rekindle that is to get back to the work we once were doing. It's to find a babysitter and go out on a date once again and leave your phone in the car and just speak with one another. Spend time with one another. And that's difficult with two human beings, but there's good news. Jesus is perfect. He's perfect love. He's perfect grace. He's perfect mercy. And if you're willing to humble yourself, that's a big if, right? If you're willing to humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've come to you to just fix my problems. I've come to you to just give me fire insurance for eternity. Lord, I just started coming to you for, to fix my job or to fix my country or to fix my AC. Lord, I started coming to fix my health. Lord, forgive me. I want to begin to do the things I was once doing. He's not going to cast you out. The humble, he's not going to cast out. When we humble ourselves and come to him, he's going to embrace us. He's going to bring us to him. And he's going to raise us up in due time. But if we come to him in our pride... 
Ah, I, I don't know if that's really me, right? I'm just too busy right now. I don't know if we could take two cars to church. That's like way too much, right? Uh, that's just way too much. Two cars to church, woof, we'll just die if that happens, right? Whatever the case may be, I'm too tired tonight. I'm too this, I'm too that. If we continue to come to him in pride, then he's going to sort of set himself up in battle already. But if we humble ourselves, hey, he's going to bring us right back into him. We're going to be able to not just remember the days that we had the greatest passion and love for Jesus, but we're going to be able to grow and exceed those previous days. And what a great way to end, right? To be able to end on top, that people are looking at you, not at your former glory, not just hearing the stories of how you once served the Lord, but able to see your life today. Man, that person is a ball of fire for Jesus. That person is passionate for our sons and daughters to be able to look at us and not just wonder how dad and mom looked like when they first got saved, but to be able to look at us and say, wow, mom and dad love Jesus so much. That we'll be able to light each other aflame for the things of the Lord. Back to Revelation chapter 2 verse 6. It says, but this you have. right?" He gives them, hey, you guys were doing all these things great. I have this against you. Verse 6, hey, you're also doing this great. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. This always makes me crack up. Yeah, I hate that too, right? That's what Jesus basically says. Hey, you guys hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Yeah, I hate that too. This is the only time in the New Testament where we see Jesus hating something. We don't know exactly what the deeds of the Nicolaitans were. It could be two different things, most scholars agree. It could either be a group of people that were living in just a sinful and disgusting state of life, but yet holding on to the so-called grace and mercy and sloppiness of God, he would accept them and everything would be okay. Right? A group of people saying, God, he doesn't really care about our sin. God doesn't care about the way we're living today. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. Just be gracious. Some would call it right, sloppy agape. That could be the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Scholars also believe the Nicolaitans, it was a group of believers that had set themselves up over other, in a sense, laymen, right? These new believers, these normal churchgoers, and these Nicolaitans set themselves up over as a higher spiritual person, a higher spiritual being, getting in the way between the Lord and the people that he loves, Right? There's even some churches today where it's not like you can just pray to the Lord by yourself, but you have to go pray to someone, and then that someone prays on your behalf to the Lord or to one of the Lord's other entities or friends, right, if you know what I'm saying. And he says that he hates this. God doesn't want anyone to get in between you and him. He wants you. He wants that relationship with you. And there's no difference between us and our right, ability to pick up the phone and talk with the Lord. I don't have a direct line to God. I don't, right? Sometimes people will come up to a pastor. Pastor, is this God's will for my life? I don't know, man. I'm asking him the same question, right? I'm trying to figure out the same thing. I'm trying to find out my, his will for my life. And God says he hates when people try to lord over each other and say, hey, I'm more spiritual. You got to come to me. I'm the only way to God. I got the corner of the market to God and talk to God. All that you've ever known is wrong, but if you buy my book and you follow my YouTube page and Instagram, I'll show you the real things of God. Jesus says he hates that. He loathes that. Right? Any parents here, you want a go-between between you and your son or daughter? You want someone to all of a sudden come and say, hey, you can't talk to your son or daughter that you cared for and changed their diapers. You got to talk to me if you want to talk to them. 
right? Would you like that? Get out of my face. What are you talking about? I birthed that person. I took care of that person. I love that person. And that's how Jesus looks at the Nicolaitans. Finally, verse 7, right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, that's for us individually. Not only did the Lord write this, Jesus write this through John to the church of Ephesus, but he says, if anyone else has an ear, hear what the Spirit's saying to these churches, that we would take it to heart. And I think each of us, we have at least one ear. I didn't see anybody come in with only one ear, right? We got two. That we'd hear, Lord, what are you speaking to me this morning? Have I left my first love? Finally, end of verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What does this mean? Do we have to become overcomers? Got to start pumping weight, take fighting classes, gun classes so we can overcome? No, 1 John chapter 5. If you want to do those things, that's okay as long as it doesn't become an idol, but that's not what I was talking about here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 through 5. Worship team, you get ready and come on up. Again, what great comfort here. 1 John 5, verse 4 through 5, it tells us, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, if you're here and you've... You've been born again. You've been renewed. Jesus is living within your heart. You're living for him. You're being obedient to his word. You are an overcomer. You and I will one day eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What's the paradise of God? That's speaking of heaven. He made the Garden of Eden. That was paradise on earth. But one day we'll meet together in the paradise of heaven. Family, again, as we close, do you remember... Do you remember a day that you had a greater love and fervor for the things of the Lord? Right? Sometimes we, be, we become apathetic and one of the biggest ways, I mentioned this in, in the first service, right? Is our prayer life and how we act during worship. I don't know if you've ever seen someone, the first moments they've realized they have been forgiven much and the way they worship. You see, sometimes we can get apathetic. We hear the songs over and over again. Maybe you know the different churches where the songs come from or the different artists. And ah, I don't like this song, this person, that person, their doctrines, this, this, that. We can become apathetic. We can just be listening to the people around us. Man, brother, so-and-so can't sing worth a lick. What is he doing, right? I wish his wife would tell him. We can become apathetic. But the whole point of worship is not for you. It's not for me. It's for him. And that's where our mind should be. And we should, again, look at our lives. How do we worship? Do we, how late do we get here at church, right? What's your passion? Is it the gym? Is it movies? Is it sports? Do you get there late, right? Oh, man, it's the Super Bowl. I would just get there at the fourth quarter, right? The last two minutes is all that matters anyways, right? No, you care about it. You're tailgating there for four hours beforehand. But do we worship? Do we just cry out to the Lord? Are we those who have been forgiven much so we love much, so we honor him, we glorify him, he moves us, he's given us emotions, so sometimes those emotions are moving during worship. That's not what should lead us, but sometimes that moves us, right? How are we in worship? How are we in our prayer life, our service to the Lord, our love for one another? 
If there's ever been a day where it's been greater, man, may we cry out to the Lord today. May we humble ourselves and say, Lord, forgive me. I've been going through the motions. I've been going through the motions. And like we read, an amazing church, verse 2 and 3. An incredible church. However, Jesus said, if you have no passion for me, if it's just become about the calendar or the things, even if it's just become about the church, I hope you don't proselytize other people about Calvary Chapel, Miami. I hope you're bringing other people to Jesus Christ. Any Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church is great. It's not about us. It's all about him. But hey, let's all stand. Pastors, if you could come up front. If you need prayer, come up front. Pray with one of the pastors. Maybe you've never had that love. You've never sensed that love of a perfect father. And just come up, ask one of the pastors what that's about. Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that today is the day of salvation, Lord. Today is the day where we make a choice, whether we continue to stay apathetic, Lord, whether we continue to stay guarded, Lord, or perhaps bitter, Lord, or whether today, Lord, we can lay all of that at your feet, God. Lord, renew our minds, Lord. Light again that fire within our heart, that passion for you, Lord, that gratitude of what you've done in our lives, Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive some of us as parents, Lord, as we've been saved, we've been growing in this, Lord. Perhaps some of our kids have never seen the passion we once had for you, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you'd convict us and help us to get back there, Lord. And we're not just talking to them about our heyday, Lord. We're living in it today. They're living by our example, God. So, Lord, be with us, move in us, God. And, Lord, help us. Lord, help us as a church collectively, Lord, to not leave, to not abandon our first love. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.